Welcome to the Consortium Podcast, an academic audio blog of Kepler Education. Kepler is a consortium of independent classical Christian teachers unified by a shared vision for student flourishing. Welcome, I'm Scott Postma, your host, and today I am uh, joined by Andrew Kern, and he's joining me via Zoom, and so I'm hoping our internet connection all works well. Uh, But Andrew, really good to have you on the show today. Scott, it's really good to be here, a podcast that's concerned with human flourishing. That means a lot, so thank you for, for letting me participate in human flourishing. Well, the, the, I, hope, I hope I make a positive contribution. <laughs> I am sure you will, because the honor is all ours for sure. And most of our listeners um, uh, will know the name Andrew Kern and the Searcy Institute. And um, and so we're, we're very honored to have you on here, Andrew. But I'm wondering just for those who may just be joining uh, the Consortium podcast or, or parents who are new to classical education, could you talk a little bit about yourself? I know that's always an awkward, you know, thing to, you know, here, talk about yourself, uh, but maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came uh, to classical education and uh, about the Circe Institute and let our audience get to know you a little bit. Yeah. Well, I wish I could give a really simple, well, I, I will, I'll give a simple answer, but it'll be a simplification. How I, how, my name is Andrew Kerr, and the most important thing to know about me is that my wife and I have nine grandchildren. And we live in Concord, North Carolina. Um, As far as how I got in classical education, it has everything to do with the fact that I have nine grandchildren. Um, Once upon a time, I had a first child. And when he was four or five, I was trying to determine what are we going to do to to educate? This was the early 90s. What are we going to do to educate our children? And I I knew it had to be better than what I had experienced. I, I knew that it had to be I'll say more Christian. I wanted something that was more faithful, more characterized by a, a deeper fidelity. Um, and so, so we were looking around, and then um, the, the, the event, the moment, I had uh, two books in, in my hands. I was reading them both at the same time, one in my left hand <laughs> and one in my right. And one was by Gene Edward Beath. It was, uh, it was called Reading Between the Lines. Crossway Books published it. And then the other one was by a gentleman you've probably heard of called Doug Wilson. And it was called um, um, <laughs> Recovering the Lost Skills of Learning. And so it gets really confusing if you if you go across like four pages all at once, because I would read them more as I just kidding. But but I was reading them at the same time, you know, metaphorically, yeah. going back and forth between them. And when I finished the book by by Doug Wilson, read, uh, Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning, I said, I have to start a school. Mm. Didn't even have a college degree. <laughs> and then and then I thought, well, how am I going to start a school? And so I looked at the other book, and, and it was really good, Reading Between the Lines. I highly recommend it, a great introduction to literature by Dr. Jean Edward Veith. And I looked on the back cover, and it said Dr. Jean Edward Veith is the Dean of Arts and Sciences at um, Concordia University in Milwaukee. Well, I was in Green Bay at the time, and you may be aware that they're both in Wisconsin, um, and and if it's not winter, it only takes a couple hours maybe to drive between them, which means you got three months, right? So yeah. so um, so I I thought, huh, I wonder if he could help me. So I went to see Dr. Veith, and he helped me. Uh, he, he got me in this adult accelerated curriculum they called it. So I was able to graduate from college in only fifteen years with with his tutelage, um, and so so um. That was how I formally got involved. I'll add one more element about the formal, and then I want to make an informal point, which I think is really important. Um, 
after I determined that I had to start a school, I mean, it was tr- truly, it was a feeling of, of calling, a sense of calling beyond feeling, just the knowledge, an awareness of calling that this is, this is what I was born to do. Um, I, <laughs> I was working for my dad at the time and he had a number of restaurants. And if you're from Wisconsin, you know, Ray Kern, or you know about Ray Kern. Um, but he had a number of restaurants called Storheim's Gourmet Frozen Custard. Um, he he um, didn't invent frozen custard. He just perfected it. <laughs> so 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 um, I went over to his house and he was hoping that I think it's safe to say he was hoping that he would be able to retire soon and that I would take over for him. I think that's the truth. And and um, but I sat down and I said, Dad, I got to talk to you. And I said, I, I have to start a school. And he didn't laugh at me. He didn't call me an idiot. He said, well, we're having a meeting tonight with a number of families that are interested in starting a school. So I'll let you present your ideas to them. Wow. <laughs> no kidding. No Providential. Kidding. 1993. And that September, Providence Academy in Green Bay, Wisconsin opened up. And I, I was involved in that. And I'm happy to say under Ron Young's leadership, it's still going. And they've just started a new, uh, they just constructed a new school outside of Green Bay. So it's, it's, he's done a lot of healing from the damage I caused, but they've got a, they've got a wonderful school going on there. Um, I wish that was entirely a joke. Unfortunately, it isn't. I did do some, I, I was very arrogant and I did hurt some people. And I did have to, I did have to step down after a year and a half. But let me go to the more cheerful part. The other, the informal element of what got me involved in the classical renewal was that when I was a child, I read Narnia. Mm. I lived in Narnia. And when I was a teenager, I became uh, uh, acquainted with Tolkien. And so when I read Sayers, it was the third of the Inklings to read, right? And and I'm, I've developed a, a, a theory, I'm sure this is actually true, that one day over at the Eagle and Child, Jack and John and Dottie were talking to each other. And, and probably Dottie said, you know what? If we don't do something, Western civilization is going to die. And, and Jack said, well, judging by the war, I think it's done that already. But, okay, what do you want to do? And then they each decided, okay, we're going to each play this role. And, and they determined that we needed stories and we needed uh, theories of education that would get us started. And we needed some really practical and some really visionary ideas. So Tolkien wrote To Save Civilization. He wrote The Lord of the Rings. C.S. Lewis wrote his essays, but especially Narnia. And Dorothy Sayers wrote a bunch of crime fiction and also The Mind of the Maker, which is incredible, mm-hmm. and the, uh, the, Lost, the Lost Tools of Learning, which is what Doug Wilson based, Douglas Wilson based his, his, his book on primarily. And I, I truly believe that there was a world historical miracle taking place in those meetings mm. and that they, they put their pulse on the direction of the world in a, in a, just a, an enormously significant way. And so I can truly trace my classical Christian education, the beginnings of it back to reading Narnia when I was a child, if nothing else, and this might be the most important thing, but if nothing else, it gave me a taste for, the kind of thing that classical Christian education concerns itself with. That's fast. That's fascinating, uh, especially because something like Narnia is so accessible and and so popular in in to a child. Yes, and so this could be some wonderful seeds. So parents 
be sure that your kids read Narnia. <laughs> That's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that there, there's the, uh, the start of one moral, at least to the, to part of this podcast. Um, well, Andrew, I, I want you to know that you know uh, through the years, just learning from you and 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 some of the things that that you've you've written uh, has been a big help to me. And one of those recently was the the three part article that you wrote um, on the um, uh, whatever what happened to classical education three part series there. And and what I took away one of the big main takeaways is looking at some of the. Uh, if I can use the term, the evolution of education through the years and, and the way that uh, different folks and generations have, have treated education. So some really insightful things. And of course, that's published on on Circe, um, uh, the Circe website. We'll put the notes or the, the links to that in the show notes. Um, but one of the things maybe talk about for just a second is you're, our, you're the director of the Circe Institute. What does the Circe Institute do? And then I want to talk about mm-hmm. that article and, and, and what, where can people or what can they learn or, or gain from the Circe Institute? Oh, thank you. So, so the easiest way, Circe, actually, the name is a joke, but I don't have time to go into it now. <laughs> it's a joke we got stuck with and then, and then it was affirmed. But it's, initially, it stood for Center for Independent Research on Classical Education. And that's because I did, as I mentioned before, get to know Dr. Veith. And then he was asked in the 90s to write a book about this new thing called classical education, this new movement, Sweeping America, as the editor put it on the cover. And um, he was asked to write a book about it. And he said, well, you're involved in this. Can you help me write this book? And I said, yeah, like I'm going to work with. No, I'm just kidding. I said, <laughs> yes, thank you. And, and um, it, was, it was the mercy of God that, that, that really I, I mentioned before that I had to uh, quit from my position at Providence. And, and it was at that time that doctor, and it was into that time when I had be, become convinced that God had given me the opportunity to do what he made me to do and that I had just ruined it. And, and then Dr. Veith called me and said, can you help me write this book? And it, it truly was just simply the mercy of God, um, lifting me from the miry clay. Um, and, and, um, what was I saying? Why did I bring up that book? Uh, we're talking about Circe and, and what the, yes, how the Institute started. Yeah. So, so, so I needed a name to, to, uh, to create a tax shelter so I could pay, so I could get a tax write-off for the computer and printer I had to buy <laughs> to work on the book. <laughs> and and uh, what I came up with was Center for Independent Research on Classical Education, which I thought was really funny because Circe, you know. Yeah, right. And then, and, and then, and then, uh, years later, I, I, I started to do speaking at conferences and consulting and so on. And so I thought, you know what, I should probably grow up and, and, and reconsider this name before it's too big a deal. So I was online. Um, I was online before Google. So it was, I was doing a Yahoo search. Remember Yahoo? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it used to be a search engine. I don't know if it still is, but I was, I was, I, I, I was doing a search on, um, Circe. I wanted to know what, what can I learn about Circe here? And about the 152nd link was to this website that described how, how uh, Circe was a daughter of the sun and it was a pagan um, goddess. And, and the name Circe is where we get our word church. Mm. In fact, church is a pagan word. And, and it's one of the many instances of how the, the, early medieval church corrupted Christianity by bringing in mythology and so on. And it was, it was a cult website, but, 
But I got so excited because it, because it told me the word Circe actually comes from church. Koriakos, it means house of the Lord, right? Yeah. So Kori, I couldn't believe it. I said, my, the church is my first love. I'm keeping the name. <laughs> so that's why we still call it Circe. And, and the other reason is because it, it's flexible. Because the other thing, and this is to answer your question a little more directly, the other thing that we do. So the first thing we do is we're a research institute. And from that research, we produce two basic things. We call it consulting and integrated resources. So think of it more expansively, training, speaking, interactions, but with real people, right? Mm -hmm. That's, we call that the the whole consulting side. And then there's the integrated resources, which is something like a book. We have our lost tools of writing rhetoric program. Um, we, We have a publishing arm, anything that's digital, anything that creates an artifact, that's our integrated resources. So Cersei stands for Center for Independent Research on Classical Education, and it also stands for Consulting and Integrated Resources for Classical Educators. And it speaks of the church. Fabulous. So, and I'm going to throw this in there, too. The name. And, and, and it's Circe because, you know, in, in the Odyssey and, you know, the, the, the mythology, you, <laughs> you have the, yeah. the, 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 the yeah. connection there. Fabulous. Okay, so so Cersei, we'll have the show notes there, of course, in the or the link again uh, in the show notes. So you wrote this article recently, and uh, as I mentioned, I you know I really appreciated it, and and so I wanted to maybe ask you a few questions, and and if you wouldn't mind unpacking um, some of these ideas uh, for our audience. Uh, in in the first article you wrote that progressive education triumphs so completely that today a person could argue for what progressive educators did in the 1950s and call it a classical education. But if I'm going to defend that pre-1920 version of education, I have to know what it is. And if I'm going to call it classical, I have to go a step further and ask by what standard or definition am I granting it this noble, for I believe it is noble, word. So just thinking about that statement, and I know that was was quite a, a mouthful, quite a quote there, what did the progressives of the 1950s argue for, and, and what do you feel like would be redeemable about that education? Yeah, maybe I should give some historical context and, and even maybe a reference. Um, I believe it was his book, Reforming Education, in which Mortimer Adler describes the, the, the warfare, <laughs> the, the pedagogical warfare that took place between 1880 and 1920. And at the, in 1880, if you, if you went to a high school in America, you probably studied Latin, Greek, and math. And that was probably it. And then the progressives came along and said, that's not enough. And, and let me just say, the early progressives pre-Dewey were not like the later progressives. They were not nihilists. They were not, they were not secularists. In fact, they were a little um, almost too mystical. They were for anybody who cares about this, they're pretty well Hegelians, I would say. Mm. They, they believe that the, the, the world was destined to produce them so that they could make the world a better <laughs> place. So, so that's not entirely fair, but it's, it's a generalization. But um, so during that 80, 1880 to 1920 period, there was this great conflict between the, 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 the very the very almost rigid imperial classical educators, basing a lot of them on what the British did, and, and, and Germans too, the philological approach, the very disciplined, rigorous approach to languages. And then the, the pragmatists who became the progressives who were saying, look, we've got, we've got a surplus in the world, in our country. We've got a, a wealth and a, um, 
an abundance of goods like the world has never seen before. And we've got, we've got this massive economy. People have to be educated for this economy. It's not like the agrarian world that, that we were like in 1840, let's say, or 1860. We, we live in an industrial world and, and we live in these, ma- we have these major cities. We need to respond to these changes. We need to, we need to change the way we're educating the children so that they can live in this world. And their, their predominant thought seems to have been economic, but certainly it also included that social element. So the positive, if you like, of even back in that period, 1880 to 1920, what the progressive wanted was to get everybody educated, right? The classical yeah. typically, the classical typically would be accused of and, and probably often rightfully so, of saying, you don't need to educate everybody. You just need to educate the the people who need an education. Well, that applied more in the agrarian world, right? Not everybody needs to go beyond eighth grade in an agrarian world. Not everybody would need to go beyond eighth grade in the modern world either if you got educated in K-8. to But since we don't, you have to go to high school to get what you didn't get in eighth grade. And frankly, now, literally, you have to go to college to learn stuff that you, you, you used to learn in seventh and eighth grade. So the longer we do it, the the worse it works, but that's a little, it's a little off topic. But so when you get, so, so by 1920, the progressives had completely won. And, and at this point, Dewey has now inflicted, um, invested his ideas into progressivism, and it's become much more, I'll say, um, atheistic, I think it's safe to say, but certainly secular and not irreligious. Although he wrote a book called uh, our civil religion. And so he, he wants to have a religion that arises from the spirit of the people. Mm-hmm. That's that for him was one of the purposes of public education. So that's, that's the 1880 to 1920 changes by the 1950s. Progressivism has triumphed so completely that classical education is there only vestigially. In other words, my, my stepmother, for example, in the fifties did study Latin. And she enjoyed it a lot, uh, but she certainly didn't study it like Shakespeare would have. You know, she she didn't she, she didn't have a chance to really learn it, and she wasn't part of a culture that that was expecting you to remember these lines from the Latin when a, when the president would give a speech. So, in a way, what you've got there in the fifties is two remaining elements of education, and this might surprise some people. By the way, I put this, but there's the progressive. And there's the traditional. I don't equate the traditional with the classical, and we can get into that later on if you like. It's more like that, but it's not the same. So by the 50s, what you have is, is traditional education, let's say American, patriotic mm-hmm. education, and progressive education. And you still have among the progressives a yearning for everybody to get educated. You have a, a appreciation for the subjective side of learning, I'll say that. Um, Dewey is fantastic on the emotional impact of not learning arts. His, his insight into the aesthetic, I, I don't think he understood aesthetics the way we would, but he understood the power of aesthetics because it was right there in front of you. And he would say, if you, if you're, if you are 12, 13, 14 years old and you get an emotion, you get a strong reaction to something and you can't express it. Yeah. Oh, that's depressing. Like we all know those moments. It's when we wish we could get something said, but what if you've been systematically educated out of the ability to right. just in a normal human way, express yourself. 
Right. And so he wanted, he wanted the, the child to learn how to um, express his response to things. Now, I, I think that they made the, they lost their balance that way, but I also think there was a balance to lose. Right. And, and sure. so those are some of the things that progressives really, really hit on. So a, ju- a just distribution of education and, and the, the proper development of, let's call it the proper development of the aesthetic mm-hmm. person. I forget the title, uh, Dewey's book on aesthetics. Um, I read it some years ago and, and there was quite a, quite a few fascinating and, and very interesting points that, that Dewey makes. And, and, and I think you nailed that. Um, what, what is, what's interesting, um, because sometimes we, we have different, um, maybe judgments about motives, but what's interesting, you're saying that in, in the original case, if we went back, you know, before Dewey and went to people like Horace Mann, this idea of this new civilization, the democratization of education really was about the stability of people in this new, uh, culture or this, this new economic sort of climate is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Horace Mann's a good person to mention. He's he's the father of public education. Did his work in Massachusetts, and I've read his his um his I think it's called the Art of Education, mm-hmm. and he understood how people learn. Right? It, it was it was a it was a re- well written book. Um, I think the 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 mistake that someone like Horace Mann made, in my opinion, time will tell, is that he was simply too optimistic about what could be done through a um. And increasingly centralized. I don't think he wanted it to be so centralized, but I don't think he. I don't think he understood how much people like to centralize things when they can. <laughs> and, 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 so, and and so the um, the, the 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 thrust for for um, well, like you just put it, the new world, the 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 adjusting to the new world. He was on to on to stuff, and and. He was too influenced, in my opinion, by, by Prussian thought, mm-hmm. um, transcendentalism, those sorts of things, too influenced. Um, on the other hand, there was a, a hunger for some of that stuff. And there was, a, there was a hunger for some of the transcendental ideas because early 1800s American philosophical thought was pretty sterile. And then there was a need for some kind of response to the to the changes in the economy because they were changing, right? Because here's a country where people are moving so fast. I mean, we think we move so fast now. That's not new to us. We move faster than they did then because we don't drive horses, but you know, they (laughs) they were already, we're we're just a nomadic people. We always have been as Americans. We're nomads. And, and he was, he was sensitive to those economic realities and wanted to, to meet that need. And so, so the, 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 the pragmatic um, Prussian system was, was an attempt to stabilize an overly dynamic country. And, and the, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, so, so, so that's where, I do think they're worth getting to know, the progressives. Sure. So, so there's some, some, maybe we'll, you know, to, to give, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, you know, to, to, to be gracious, you know, that there were some, some noble ideas that they were trying to accomplish or some noble things they're trying to accomplish, but without a right perspective, maybe, um, or, or a full knowledge of what those implications were. Um, yeah, I think that makes sense. Now you, you call classical education noble in, in that same statement. And so why would classical education of these different kinds be 
Uh, you know, why would that be noble? And, and then we want to maybe get into a couple of examples that you gave that I think were really helpful. Well, I would say one reason it was noble is because it tried to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that was its goal. <laughs> yes, it, yeah. it really was um, and is. Um, you know, in, in Philippians 4, 8, when, when St. Paul gives us the standards to reflect on, he says whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is noble. Right. And, and so there's a sense of, of human dignity, mm-hmm. right, of, of we're the image of God. And so within, within classical, within the, the entire classical, and in fact, I would say this is an essential of the classical tradition. From the beginning, from Homer, let's say, or if you want to say Christian classical, from Moses or from Abraham, right, just from creation, you have this incredibly high view of man. In, in a real sense, this might offend some people, but true humanism. Sure. Right? Humanism. Nowadays, we suffer under secular humanism. A real humanism is, is this incredibly, I mean, look, how, how can you get any higher than being the image of God? Yeah. Is there, can, can there be anything greater than being the image of God? Now, we understand that we're fallen and broken, but that doesn't mean that we now have a low view of what a human being is by nature, by created nature. And so that sense of, what does C.S. Lewis say? You, you're a son of Adam and a daughter of Eve. That is enough to lift the head of the lowest servant and to bow the head of the highest king. Mm, yeah. right? That's that's about right. Yeah. right. And so there is this, so that's what I mean. There's this sense of the nobility of what it means to be a created image of God. And, and, and that high view of man is precisely what makes us need, well, it might even be what enables us to be humble. Sure. Christopher Perrin, you know, Dr. Perrin, yeah. he said something that was like a showstopper at a conference not long ago. In fact, I wrote it down as one of the 10 or 15 most influential quotes I've ever heard in my whole life. It's, it's up there with Thomas Aquinas and guys like that. So I'm going to try to read it to you. He, he said... To humble a boy, put him in the presence of something greater than himself. Mm, yeah, absolutely. right. We, you're not going to humble a person by telling him he's he's a mess. Yes, right. That doesn't humble him. That makes him defensive. That yeah. makes him prideful. In fact, yeah, because pride is a compensation. That's what we forget. Yeah, pride is us covering up our brokenness, not acknowledging it. But if you want to humble a person, put them in the presence of something greater than himself. That's how we feel around friends, isn't it? Like yeah, a true absolutely. friend, you always feel like, "What am I doing in his presence?" Right, right. right? <laughs> or, or, or if you're reading, if you're reading Virgil or you're reading Homer, you know you you can't, you couldn't have written this. Right, right, right. right. And, that, and that's a humbling, a humbling experience, and that's nobility. Yeah, right? that's the connection between nobility and humility. So the attempt is to produce something truly great something worthy of, of the image of God, something worthy of what Plato would have called the divine spark. Mm-hmm. That's the nobility. And then the humility is, man, that's so hard. That's why they called on the muses. I, several things you just mentioned, and I, I'm, I'm going to just mention them just for our audience, but um, I, we could get carried away in a rabbit trail. And Wes Callahan always says sometimes the rabbit trail is the point, but I, but I want to finish talking about um, – 
the uh, the the articles because this is this is just gold. There's a lot of great stuff here that you're sharing, but uh, the idea of humanism, uh, and that's something that that I'm actually working on writing in my dissertation in, in the restoration of Christian humanism. Uh, oh, but but there's a there's a real um, I think a lack. We we go two different ways in in terms of either too high of a view of man in the sense of the secularist. There's no transcendental order or anything like that, and then or transcendent order. Not, I just used your transcendental as we're talking about, but the transcendent order. And then uh, the other side is, you know, we, we kind of adopt this worm theology and almost forget what the gospel did, right? And and, and that uh, restoring the dignity of man through the, the incarnation of Christ. But uh, I just wanted to mention that because I really appreciate you bringing that element. And I think that's what classical education really does in terms of focus on the noble, where in our modern education, as you're going to uh, point out we'll talk about here in a second uh tends to dismiss that as you know wisdom and virtue being you know because morals and 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 knowledge is relative in our modern world we don't focus on that you know and we miss something great so in in part two of of this series um you um or maybe i guess this is still in part one but but you ask you know what is essential to classical education, what is essential to the alternatives, and then how do they relate to each other? And I'm wondering, would would you take just a moment? And I don't want to get us, you know, too far or, or get you off track too far. But but would you unpack that so that our audience understands what you know what is uh, you know essential to classical education when we're talking about that? What is essential to the alternatives, and then you know how do they relate to each other? Yeah, I'll try to address that. Um, I mentioned earlier that this whole thing that I do was launched with researching the book mm-hmm. and, and it's a, a research Institute, but it's not a normal modern research Institute. The, the driving question for me is what is classical education and then how do we do it? Right. And, and what can we get away with? Yeah. <laughs> how much of it can we actually, you know, accomplish in, in this day and age? And every time I'm asked the question, I feel like there's, well, it's 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 what it's it's almost like one of these postmodern things where you it's it's ever captured, ever deferred, right? Yeah, right, um, right. It's it, and I think that's because it's beautiful, mm-hmm. right? And 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 the infinite is beautiful, sublime, and 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 but but for us as Christians, the infinite is a welcome um, sublimity. It's not a terrifying sublimity. It's yeah. a it's a sublimity yeah. we can trust. And so so when I think about classical education. And when I talk about it, I run the risk of, of throwing out what can just come out as platitudes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm going to do that. Okay. I'm going to just throw out some things that are going to come out as platitudes. And then my encouragement to everybody would be to, to say, okay, that's simplistic. That's even idiotic. I think I'll think about it. <laughs> see, if you can, see if you can make something better of it than I can say right now. But what I'll say is this, that the essence, the very, the very, Heart and soul, or let me put it, the final cause, the purpose of classical education is the virtuous human being. Mm. And and really what I mean by that is the the complete, the fully flourishing, back to your introductory comment, the the blessed man, right? Now, when we talk about Christian education, what what we're talking about is the blessed man, that that man who's who's 
like a tree planted by the rivers of water, whose all of his branches are strong, all of his leaves are are, are abundant, all of his fruit is 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 abundant too, <laughs> flourishing, right? And 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 he's he's there by the river of water. He, he, and when when he's called on in his season, he's always reliable, right? Everything that he does prospers. That's the blessed person. That's the fulfillment of what classical education was dreaming about. Modern education doesn't care so much about blessedness or virtue. Modern education cares primarily about um, making sure you got your share of the water as it flows by. <laughs> but, it, but it tends to think of us as living in a desert and, and fighting for scarce water. Whereas we live in a cosmos that is, is the spoken, it is the word of God ever, ever expressing his wondrous love to us, right? So we yeah. just, there's just nothing but God's goodness flowing past us all the time. And then humans come and contort it, but you know, there it is. <laughs> but anyway, so, so virtue is the first point I would make that, that, that the goal of it is the virtuous person, the fully, and virtue means, it means excellence. Arete mm-hmm. is the, is the Greek word. It means excellence. Virtus is the Latin word. You can probably hear virtus, virtue in that. It means manly excellence, right? It means, it means, it, it comes to mean sometimes just courage, yeah. right? But ultimately the concept of virtue is, is a human excellence. And it's a, it's a faculty. This is a practical definition. It's a faculty that has been refined we won't reach perfection, but it's a God-given faculty that has been refined to a pitch of excellence. Yeah. So for example, I can walk, not very well anymore, I'm getting old, but I can walk. <laughs> okay. I have the virtue of walking. I no longer have the virtue of walking fast. I no longer have the virtue of speed, right? I, yeah. I, I never really did have that virtue, but I don't have the virtue of, of, let's say, coordination, right? There's physical virtues. There's also intellectual virtues. And by that, I don't mean academic. I just mean virtues that of understanding. We have, we have a God-given faculty. Just everybody take a moment to think about this tonight. Mm. You can speak and you can hear other people speak. And with very little effort, you can know what they mean. Think about that. Compare yourself to anything else. Just dwell on that. Why did God give us the ability to use language? Because he wanted to talk to us, right? That's, that's, fascinating. that's why language is that's why language is such a sacred thing. Mm-hmm. That's, why, that's why grammar is a holy study, right? Because our capacity to understand, which is what grammar teaches us, is a holy act. And so the, so the faculty that God gave us, the faculty to interpret signs, if you like, to, to figure out what a word means, to figure out what a sign means, to figure out what symbols mean, that's a God-given faculty. And if you cultivate that, well, one, you're more like God, and two, you can enjoy him better. Yeah. And so, so, so that's what I mean by the virtues. Um, I think an important corollary to that is virtue. The reason virtue isn't taught anymore. So it's, it's going through a revival ever since McIntyre and, and we're even seeing it in schools. Now I picked up a book by a, by a scholar, by a founder of a school in California called intellectual virtues. No, it was called something other than that, but it's about, he did a, he did a, uh, uh, a re- he did a study into how students learn and, and he called it intellectual virtues. So even in the, the wider secular sphere, they're making a comeback. Yeah. Glory to God. Yeah. They, there are, there are, you know, the spiritual virtues of faith, hope, and love are crucial and the moral virtues are crucial as well. So, 
But it's better to get in an argument with a virtuous person than a vicious person. Right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, anyway, no. But but the reason the reason virtue is lost, I would suggest, is or, or the or it's not as valued as highly in our culture, and it's even dismissed a lot cynically, is. Because the other thing that's been lost is what we talked about earlier is the high view of man. Yeah. And let me put it this way. We don't believe in nature anymore. Mm. And, and this, is, this is something Lewis talked about so much in the abolition of man and all his writings. And this is, this is what Dewey particularly was working against was this, what, he, what, what Dewey believed. And he wrote an essay called On the Impact of Darwinism Upon Philosophy. And, and it's a short essay. For Dewey, it's readable. And, and he begins that essay, basically in that essay, he argues that the, that the classical and the Christian thinker, and really the classical, because Christians to him are just imitators, the, the classical thinker has a hang-up, and that hang-up is on permanent things, mm. okay? You have to get over that. That's what, that's what Darwin proved, is there are no permanent things. Specifically, there is no permanent human nature. Okay? Human nature is, is something that goes through way stations, and right now we're like we are, and in a million years will be different. Yeah. And of course, now that we've now that evolution has become conscious of itself, as they like to say, now we can control our evolution. And that's what really up to a large extent, the post-humanism yeah. that you read about, the po- the transhumanism, transgenderism, all of these things are are the human race believing that it can take itself to the next level of our development. And you notice as Lewis predicted, it's not. Yeah. Right. It's not we're not we're not getting to a new level of of insight and complexity and adaptability. So that, lo- that loss of a conception of nature, of, of nature is created here. I don't mean just the fallen, but the, the God created nature. Um, we've lost our respect for that. And so, so since we don't respect human nature, we don't respect the cultivation of human nature as a good in itself. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I'll be able to do with this God-given gift in this world for practical purposes. It doesn't matter if it's going to help me get into college or get a good job or, or whatever, because it's God-given, right? Yeah. And so I give glory to God simply by cultivating the, the, the image of God, which is at least in part cultivating the faculties of the, of the child in front of me, right? And so it's an act of worship in that, not of the child, but of the God whose image that child is made of in it's an act of worship to cultivate that child's um, human faculties, right? His human nature, right? Again, I want to be cautious about, I know that we're broken and sinful, but human nature is eternal. Sure. sure. Christ took it on human nature is sitting at the right hand of God right now. Well, we have, yeah. Go ahead. I, I, sorry to interrupt you there, and there may be a little bit of delay, but well, this brings to mind in education why we lack in modern education the idea of the ought, and we and we and we turn to just the is. I think uh, uh, Hicks deals with this in Norms and Nobility, and among yeah. other people. But but so we lose the ought, right? We we there's there's nothing to strive for. There's there's no dignity or nobility, um, you know, for to to point a child to, um, it, you know, the the virtues, and so it's just this is what is and that that fundamentally changes the way education happens wouldn't you say uh, yeah absolutely that's such a great way to put it when you said about the dignity and 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 the nobility it dawned on me that one of the that a latin term for it is gravitas mm, yes right? that, yeah. that a noble person has gravitas well that means weight yeah right and so we can't bear the weight of our nobility 
Right. And that's 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 a problem. And and I think that's, for example, I think that's why Jordan Peterson is so popular is because he speaks to, to people as though they're noble beings. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, take on the responsibility. You can do this. Yeah, yeah you're going to suffer. You can handle it. That's that's nobility. And yeah. mo- but most people tell him, tell, I, I think it's true to say that especially especially. No, I think men and women, both boys and girls, both are, are both are told that their nature is something they should alter, they can get rid of, they can change it. It's not anything special. There's nothing. Why would you want to stay being male if you could be something else? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and what we don't give those boys and what we don't give those girls is the splendor of what it means mm. to be a human, right? They don't feel the splendor of being the divine image. They feel the brokenness. And I think we've cultivated for 500 years or more, we've cultivated the brokenness. Yeah. Yeah. But it might have been overdone. Mm-hmm. It might be that we've overdone it, that they also need to remember that, yes, they're broken, but they're broken something. Yeah. Right. They are the broken temple of the living God. Yeah. And it's a temple that's worth restoration. Well, that I, I mean, that alone right there is enough gold <laughs> in this episode. I mean, just the fact, um, you know, in having conversations with other educators who do not have a, a Christian worldview, I find this this very argument you're making uh, very, very clear, uh, clearly laid out in their negation of it or their, their dismissal of the fact that that this dignity that we have as human beings, that there is nothing inherently uh, rooted in it for them because we are, as you said, you know, we're just, um, there, there's nothing to develop. Uh, we're, it's the atheistic worldview. We're just materialist. You know, you're a bunch of clump of sales, cells that have, you know, doing what it does and, you know, existentialism, all these ideas are throwing into it that, that really remove the, the idea of the dignity or something to point a child to or to imitate or for them to imitate or, or recognize. And, uh, and, and let me respond to that very briefly by yeah. saying, a statement that might sound absurd, but I actually believe this. I believe that the way we educate children is the primary reason so many kill themselves. Oh, man. Do you, do you want to unpack that a little bit? Because that's powerful. No, I want to leave it. Okay. All right. Let's leave it right there. I, yeah, I, I, I mean, think I'm there's just some kidding when I say that a little, not, not my reaction, but not my react. I'm kidding with my reaction, not the statement. I believe that when you tell a child, from from at least when he's five upward, formally and informally, uh, deliberately and, and not deliberately, that he's fundamentally meaningless, that, that, that he's fundamentally not what he wants to be and never will be, and that his, he, 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 he rules himself. He's autonomous. He's his own self-rule. But by the way, nobody's ever figured out how to do that yet to rule oneself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially not without a creator. That you Think of it this way. We live in a cosmos as Christians. Mm-hmm. We live in a cosmos. Okay. Moderns don't. They live in a universe. Yeah. Some of them live in a multiverse. And when they look out into space, what they see is a vast emptiness. And I don't know why this is, but it's a historical reality that in every society, when you look out into space, you find yourself looking into your soul. Mm-hmm. And whatever you see out there is what you see within yourself. And if when, you, when, when we look out into space, when this child looks out into space and sees nothing but emptiness, 
That's what he sees when he looks inside himself. And so, so, so in every, every communication we give to children in our culture today is you're a mess. You're, you're broken. You're a problem. There's no solution, but you should fight for your rights, especially the right to alter yourself. And, and you should, you should feed on your discontent. Mm. You should feed on that. It'll make you powerful because that's all there is, is power. That sounds fighting for power. That's so, I mean, of course the power part of Nietzsche, but that sounds so Camus, right? The only thing the, the the whole purpose of life is whatever you're doing that prevents you from killing yourself. Oh boy. Wow. He said that. Yeah. The, the whole idea. I mean, for the rest of this conversation to Camus. <laughs> yeah. This, uh, yeah it, it's, it's the, it's the idea that, you know, the only philosophical class question left is, you know, why not kill yourself? You know, because the meaning well, of life see, that's is that. okay. That's okay for a French existential philosopher <laughs> who just lived through world war two and is about to get killed in a car accident. Yeah. But if maybe even because he's a spy, but it's not okay to teach six-year-old kids that. Right, right. It's not, and, and, and you don't, we don't tell them, right? We don't tell them. It's the form of their instruction. Well, yeah. we do tell them now. But it was, it's the form mm-hmm. of their instruction. We confuse them. There is no resolution to the discord we're putting in their souls. So that's, that's what I mean. I truly, honestly believe upon what I would like to think of as mature reflection that we are driving kids in our society to suicide by the way we teach them in our schools, not just the content, but by the way we do it by the, the by the form and the, the approach that, that is, that's, that's heavy. And, and we could probably stop there, but I have a, a few more questions if you're willing to, to give the time, uh, because be this is cheerful. Yeah, no, <laughs> this is, but this is good stuff. And I, I'm really glad for our folks to get to hear this and in our audience to get to know, uh, some of these ideas and, and I hope that they explore them even further. Uh, but in part two, you write that the underlying premise is that human nature continually generates three forms of education. And since oh, yeah. that is so, uh, they'll be found everywhere. So any community or society that undermines or disregards one or two of the three for the sake of one or two others has broken the threefold cord that weaves a society together. And then you give three examples from one from Greece, Judea, the time of Christ, and then America. And I found this really insightful uh, to, to use this sort of universal uh, you know, illustration. Can you unpack that for our audience? And, and could we talk about that for a minute? We could probably talk about that for decades. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Classical philosophy, classical philosophy, I am of the opinion that it begins with Homer. I do, I do find it hard to persuade people of that. So I'll say that the pre-Stoic philosophers who are, I mean, Socratic philosophers who are recognized and called philosophers begin with one basic argument. Is all one or is all many? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Parmenides says all is one and therefore nothing ever changes. Change is an illusion. And Heraclitus says, no, everything is changed. He's the one who famously said, you can't step in the same river twice, yeah. right? Why, why not? Because it's not the same river the next time you step in. Okay, so, so Parmenides would say, no, that's an illusion. We would say, no, the river stays, but the water goes through it, right? But wow, that's, that's a big, big jump. Okay, so there's the one and there's the many. There's stability and there's change. And in, in, in any human society, in any family, there's conflict between these two. And what happens in, in, in any family is 
almost any family, is the parents represent stability, the kids represent stability, and then they become teenagers. Right? And then change <laughs> happens so fast. Yeah. And so now you have to figure out, are we going to be ruled by stability or are we going to be ruled by change? And that leads to endless conflict. Okay. And so that, so just looking at if we extend that normal human dynamic out into um, education, there's always a group of people that want things to stay the same. Usually it's the people who are well off. Then there's another group of people who want things to change. And usually it's the people who are excluded from whatever the people who have the stable desires wish for. Um, it does get more complicated than that, but that's a basic concept. So we have a fundamental problem in every society. Now, most societies, if they're able to survive, um, rise above or, or, or come between. And one of my favorite quotations in my whole life is from St. Augustine in his book on music. Mm. And it's ironic. It's a definition. This is how St. Augustine defines music. I mean, I like this so much. I even took the trouble to learn it in Latin. It's short. <laughs> he said, Musica est scientia bene modulandi. Mm. Musica est scientia bene modulandi. And what it, what it literally means, well, what it means is music is the art of modulating well. Wow. That's just, and, and when I read it, I was thinking about these philosophers at the time. And so it was like, um, it was like a light bulb going on, <laughs> if I may create a new analogy that nobody's ever used before. <laughs> but, but, it, but, it, but it struck me that, yeah, the whole world is musical. The entire cosmos is musical. Right? It, it's God's poetry, if you like. It has rhythm and it has, it has change and it has stability. And so what's, what's, what brings those two things together? Modulation. Mm -hmm. And when you modulate, now you have harmony. Right? And every society that makes it past Friday afternoon did so because they modulated between the stable and the unstable. Mm. What we're going through in America today is, is a... a um, a reactionary dynamic between those two things where the communication back in the eighties, it was sort of possible to communicate across the aisles. It's, it's almost impossible now yeah. because the, the, the progressive mindset or the pragmatic mindset, what I would call the sophistic mindset has become so dominant in our positions of authority. And then the traditional mindset, um, it just wants things to go back. Right. But that's not going to happen. Right. The world has changed. And what, what do we need? We need to modulate. Mm. And here, so what I'm, what I'm arguing is that you can find this everywhere in human history and education, every society. If we look at, I didn't mention this in the article, but you can go to China, right? And you can say, okay, Confucius, what's he? He's about stability. Yeah. Right. He's a traditionalist. And then Lao Tzu, I would say with the, with the Tao, I would see him as being, um, I would see him as being wisdom, like the, the, a higher wisdom. Um, he talks about the Tao, which I would, I would say that's as close as the Chinese language has for, our word, for the Greek word logos, okay. so, so, so the word. Um, and that's why Lewis uses it. In, in, um, yeah, I was just going to say that. That sounds, sounds just like uh, the way Lewis used it in The Abolition of Man. Yeah, because it's a higher wisdom, right? Yeah. So, so, but there's also Chinese skeptics. Fewer. It's interesting. China, Chinese civilization is extremely stable over its history because it hasn't had the sophists, right? Like, yeah. like, the, like the Greeks had. But nonetheless, there are some of them. 
And so, so you have the threefold education taking place there, and it's dominated by Confucianism, I would argue. Now, in the modern world, with Marxism, that's where you, you, you see the radical sophistry and progressivism, and a Mao can come along and kill, I think it was 60 million people with basically with bad ideas about education mm. and then and then and applying them to politics now in the in the articles that you were referring to i specifically mentioned the ancient greeks and there you see the sophists i would say the sophists are like the modern pragmatists they're the ones who want change they're the ones who who believe that change is all there is there is nothing stable right and then there's the 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 uh, traditionalists their motto was make athens great again um, they walked around with MAGA hats, <laughs> but, but they were, they were ancient Athens is uberalist, you know, they were nationalists in a certain way or the Spartans, they were, they were incredibly traditional. Right. And now the, the best part of Greek education in the traditional side was the, 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 the Hellenists or the Hellenic people who really revered Homer and, and built their whole education on Homer because that's, that opened up that quest for the modulation. And when you get to Socrates, you've got this fight going on between the sophists and the traditionalists and Socrates who fought in the Peloponnesian war, um, fought in the Persian war, didn't he? No, he couldn't have. He fought in the Peloponnesian Peloponnesian, war. And, and, but, but he was aware of the, he had sat when Herodotus was giving his lectures. Socrates was a boy listening to those lectures and Herodotus was celebrating freedom right? And celebrating virtue and nobility. And then during the Peloponnesian War, the Athenian people who had just one generation or two generations earlier fought off the Persians, go to the island of Milos, and they, they sell them all into slavery. And when the Melians say, hey, what about freedom? The Athenian response is basically, oh, isn't that cute? You believe in freedom. <laughs> And, you know, it's that condescending cynicism that arises. And that's what the sophists, according to, I think, Socrates, which said that's what the sophists brought into Athens. And his reaction was, oh, boy, I can't go back. I can't go back to the tradition. We need something better. Mm. And I would contend that he introduces, in a certain sense, he does go back to, to, to the Homeric tradition, but he he reconsiders it, right? And he, and he brings in a, um, a wisdom tradition that becomes philosophy, right? The love of wisdom. He brings in a wisdom tradition and Pythagoras influences it too. And that becomes the, the best of Greek thought. So for, sorry for all the detail. There's, there's no, a this sophist. is great. Thanks. And there's a sophist and there's a traditionalist and there's the, and then there's this quest for wisdom and he almost maybe saves Greece, maybe not. I don't know. But you get the same thing in Rome. You get the same thing in, in um, uh, at the time among the, the Jewish people at the time of Christ. I would I would suggest that the Pharisees were the traditionalists. That that you know it, it, they were terrified, rightfully so. They were terrified of exile. Yeah. And why did the why did the Israelites go into exile? Idolatry, uh, uh, spiritual and even cultural intermingling with the surrounding nations and adultery. Yeah. Right, and so they were hyper conscious about any mixing up with the surrounding nations, any influence of Hellenistic thought, things like that. So they became very rigid out of their fear. But then the the the, the um, Sadducees come along, and they're kind of wide open to this Hellenistic thought, and they're very modern, and they're they're about change and dynamics, and they're skeptical. They're much more like 
and I don't mean sophists here in the in the negative sense, but just sophists yeah, that yeah. that that kind of thinking. And then the apostles come along under the tutelage of our Lord Jesus Himself, and He speaks to them in ancient wisdom, right? Mm. And he and he and he transcends. He takes everything that's good in the Pharisees and everything that's right in the Sadducees, and he and he and he. I shouldn't say he takes it from them and lifts it up. He gave them what, yeah, what right. was there, but he, but he lifts it into an ancient wisdom, right? And so there's so there's a modulation that we always need to, to exercise. In American history, there's three periods even. It kind of falls out nicely for us. There's the colonial period. That would be the goal of education during that period was self-consciously producing virtuous leadership. Yeah, That's what they were trying to do, and they said so. And they made education hard for that reason. And then in the 19th century, it's this newly discovered nation, national identity. And so it becomes about producing a good citizen. Yeah. But then the 20th century comes along and the world is changing so fast. And so it's not enough to be the good citizen anymore. Now it becomes dominantly progressive. Well, now we're in a transition period in American history. It's exciting to see, actually. I'm astounded. I could not have imagined this in the 90s, how many classical schools, secular and, and private, public and private, secular and Christian. And I mean, there's Muslim classical schools starting up now. It's unbelievable. And I, and I think that's because there's such a deep hunger for the ancient wisdom. And, 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 it's, and that ancient wisdom has never gone away, right? It's always right. been available. It's always been contained in texts. And it's always been, in a certain sense, it's always been deep within our souls waiting to be, to be um, excavated or discovered or whatever, <laughs> being the image of God. And so, so even in American history, you see those three kinds of education. And hopefully, possibly right now, if we think highly enough of our children to make them suffer enough, mm. they, can, they can get the, uh, the fullness of, well, something like the fullness. We can, we're, this is, a, as Douglas Wilson has often said, this is a multi-generational work. Yeah. And, and hopefully we can get the, the, the next generation further down the path and we've gone. I hope that's a help. I didn't, I hope I, I don't know if I got into too much detail no, or too little or whatever, that, but it's, it's super helpful. Um, and, and I, th- I think it's really helpful for folks to be able to, you know, maybe put these different ideas into categories be- because I think we do live, mm-hmm. um, in, you know, and you mentioned it, <clears throat> you know, by, by way of jest with the, the MAGA make, uh, Athens great again. Um, but, but I think we, sometimes we, we fall into this sort of polemic view of the world where it's, it's us versus them and, and, um, on one side or another and the inability to transcend that and, and to see that ancient wisdom so important and what a noble goal for classical educators, you know, to, to point students to. Well, if, if we would just, you know, I, I've got a whole list of questions I could ask you, but we're coming up on an hour and, and I'm, I'm really thankful for your time. I don't want to, pres- uh, you know, presume on that much longer, but um, in the, the last part, um, you go through a list of, of 11 theses and they're, and they're great. I, I, I love the, 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 you know, the comparison, um, but you make this statement kind of summarizing it. You said the heart and soul of classical education the cultivation of virtue was replaced by method while each of the liberal arts were reduced to an inept caricature of what they had previously understood to be and do. So in what way is this cultivation of virtue replaced by method? What do you mean by method? And and I think this is such an important point you make. Um, I feel like I owe an apology to people in a way uh, with this point, because you know, as I said, in 
1893, I started asking what is classical education, and a big part of that required historical awareness. Mm. And um, the seven liberal arts is, is um, something I discovered back, back in the 90s when, when I was doing the research under Dr. Veith about what classical education is, and I was fascinated by it. And, and I noted that the Middle Ages were dominated by the seven liberal arts. But then with the Renaissance, they're gradually disappearing. So I started asking why, what, why don't, why do the liberal arts today mean a vacuous basket of subjects that mean whatever the master says they mean, right? Because I'm even opposed, I don't want to go too far on this, but I'm even opposed to the teaching of subjects. Mm -hmm. I don't believe we should teach subjects. And the reason for that is because there's too many of them. Yeah. Anything can be a subject. They're arbitrary. Whatever the person in power wants to teach he can call a subject and impose. It's not drawn from nature, you see. Yep. It's not an attempt to cultivate virtue. So it's not drawn from nature. It's just a, it's just a subject. Yep. Now, wh- how did we get to the point where in the 21st century, we could be turning some of the things that we call subjects into subjects? <laughs> how did we get there? And, and, and what's, what surprised me very much is that this is a long problem that as far back as the 15th century, you start seeing a, a, a very, very gradual shift from, from virtue to method. And the basic difference is this. I'll put it in as vivid terms as I can, and then people can think about it and develop their own nuances. I'll put it in one versus many. I'll, 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 care, I'll, I'll create conduct. But, 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 but virtue is expressed by when our Lord says, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore the lamp be dark, if, if the lamp is full of darkness, how great is the darkness thereof? And obviously, he's not ultimately talking about the physical body. Right. He's talking about the eye of the soul. And if you blind the eye of the soul, right, what he's saying is if you take away the God-given faculty to perceive reality with the soul, okay, then you are darkened. Yeah. In other words, to know what truth is requires virtue. Okay. Now, when we get to the Copernican revolution and when we get to the scientific revolution, you read uh, Peter Ramus alters rhetoric profoundly. Mm. And, and um, I'll leave that at that there. And then Descartes writes a discourse on method, right? Yep. And the idea the idea, and it's a dominant idea throughout the Renaissance. The, the idea is, how can we come up with a repeatable pattern of behavior that will give us a predictable outcome? Let's face it. That's what we're looking for when we buy a curriculum. Yeah. Right? What, when we put our kids in a school, what we want to know is what's, well, what we should ask is, well, we should transcend this question, but at some point we should be at, well, what's your method of teaching here? And if they say, okay, this is our method of teaching, then you say, well, I don't want my kids to sit under a method <laughs> because there is no, <laughs> there is no method by, for example, there is no Socratic method. Yeah, right. right? There, there is, that's not a method. It's a quest yep. and it's intuitive, right? And it's, and it's follow your nose in effect, whatever it takes to find the truth, do whatever it takes. But what what the virtue tradition teaches, and our Lord makes very clear, is that what it takes to discover truth is purity of heart. Now, if that's the case, 
how are you going to educate your children? Mm. On the other hand, if what you want is success in, in career and success in college in a method driven society, well, then you got to get with the system. Right. You have to learn the methods that, that lead to success. And why is there so much success literature written since the early 20th century? Mm-hmm. Because the 19th century saw the triumph of method. From the, sixth, from the 15th to the 19th century, method and virtue were both dynamically engaged with each other. But when we get to the 19th century, you really see method. Whitehead, in, he's quoted in Norms and Nobility, says the great dis- development, the great discovery of the 19th century was not any one particular invention. It was method, mm. right? It was method itself, yeah. the reduction of everything to a method. And notice something. If you have a method by which you can find the truth, if you have a method by which you can learn how to write, if you have a method by which you can learn to be creative or make movies or whatever, it doesn't matter if you're good or bad. Right. You're just formulaic, right? Well, I don't want to reduce it. That would be, okay. there, there is that, there is that, yeah, in an extreme version of methodism, <laughs> but, but, um, but, and, 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 okay, so I just accidentally said a joke that has meaning. So I use the term <laughs> methodism, right? Okay, yeah. so, so I'm going to say this. I, 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 I'm not talking about methodism now as the religion, but, but, but Christianity from the 15th century onward does have an obsession with finding methods by which you can get the Holy Spirit, methods by which you can get saved, methods by which you can become holy, and so on and so forth, right? So there's this this, um, drive toward finding a method, and that's why I think there's also so much fear of legalism, Mm. that that, that as soon as you start getting a disciplined approach, approach to behavior, people accuse you of being legalist, right? <laughs> right. So, so we don't, we're so confused. And the reason we're so confused is because we're in a method-driven mode of thinking by which the method will help us get to whatever we're after instead of a virtue-driven mode in which you need the Holy Spirit to simply blow across, right? And, and, yeah. you, and the wind blows, the Spirit blows where it wishes. And you can hear the sound, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. And so the great artist would, would always, you know, it's not an accident that Homer and Virgil and John Milton begin their poems by calling on the muses, the muse. in Milton's case, the heavenly muse. Because there's no predictability in an art, right? There's no predictability in a creative endeavor. There's no method. There's no guarantee that you're going to write a bestseller, right? There's, there's no guarantee. But in a method-driven society where part of our sensibility is that we like when somebody else does something according to the method, right? Now, yeah. now okay, play your four-minute, five-minute song, and I'll like it because it it's on the right chords. <laughs> and, 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 play, and write your, your romance novel or your detective fiction, and I'll like it because it plays out the, the way I'm used to, right? Mm. And so we've got this, we've got this, obsession with method and we want to reduce everything. We think we're going to be able to fix the economy. We think we're going to be able to fix race relations. We think we're going to be able to fix all the, the, the political issues. We, we think we can deal with the Ukraine basically by method. Sure. No, we can't. It takes wisdom. Yeah. And wisdom is the art of modulation, right? It's musical. And that means that there's no shortcuts. Mm. You have to actually know what you're talking about, which I hate. I mean, I just <laughs> despise that fact. Right. I have to know what I'm talking about if I'm going to do anything well. This is why I haven't done anything well in life. But, the, but, the, but there's, one, there's one obsession I've got, and that's how can we escape from methods so that my children don't suffer the same misfortune that I brought on myself. Right? There's, 
Sorry, I, I, again, this is this is a a, a hard a hard thing to simplify, um, but that that quest for the repeatable pattern of behavior that produces a predictable outcome, um, and doesn't require moral transformation. Right, that's what method is. Yeah, I I I love your definition, your description. I love the way you unpack that because for me, and 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 I may not be, you know, I I don't know this entirely, but from what I've studied, what I've read, what I've experienced, it seems to me that method, this is why I love this, this, this statement and wanted to unpack it. It seems to me that the modern world, this is one of the key things like Lewis in uh, Datus Scriptoni Temporum talks about, you know, the old Western culture and the, the new, and there's this dividing line somewhere around Jane Austen. But it seems to me that method mm-hmm. is one of those key. I mean, there's other things Absolutely. we can point to, but that's one of the key yep. differences between the old world and, and the modern world. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. As I said, it was gradual at first, but by the 19th century, it becomes, uh, becomes a route and we're driven by method. And that's, that's one of the reasons we have reasons. I mean, even thinking like even logic, the way we approach logic is methodical, mm-hmm. right? There's, there's, it's controllable. Method is an attempt to control things to have power over things. But in the, but, and if you don't have faith, that's what you seek, right? We even try to rule over the infinite. So, yeah, it's one of the biggest differences. The other is virtue. The third, I would say, would be would be analysis, right? We've switched from the, I judge from the way you rapidly recited the title of Lewis's book that your audience won't mind me saying it this way, but but we've switched from the analogia entis to the, ana, ana, I don't know what the term is, but analytica entis. <laughs> yeah. In other words, the, the create, we don't believe, and this is, an, this is much older than, than, than Darwin, Okay. Long before Darwin, we stopped believing that we live in a creation that means something. Yeah. That is the word of God speaking. If it's a creation, then it's an analogy. Yeah. By its very essence and nature, it is an analogy. If we're an image, we are by nature an analogy. Yeah. We're an analogy of God, right? But we but with the way we learn, and I get the place of this and the power of it. But what, the way we approach the world now, we think we live in an analysis. We, live, we think we live in a world that can be known by analysis. And it can't. It can be learned about by analysis. And you can test your analogies to see if they're correct by analysis. But ultimately, the only real knowledge we get is analogical knowledge. And I think you even see this already in the second use of the word knowledge in the Bible, where it says Adam knew Eve mm. his wife which is the most romantic statement in all of human history. Yeah. Cause don't forget what just happened to them. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right? But Adam knew Eve's wife. Right. And modern yeah. translations, there's one that says Adam had relations with uh, Eve's wife. And I'm, what? Ick. What the heck? <laughs> what kind of cowardly tepid translator are you? <laughs> Sorry. I didn't know the persons, but, uh, but had relations. No, yeah. it's Adam knew Eve, his wife. Yeah. And, and the fact that we, the fact that we can't think analogically about sex is part of the reason for the porn problem. Right. Oh, that's good. Because we have read, we, our, our perception of human nature is so low that a man can look at an image of a female. Okay. And, and looking at that image of a female completely forget that that beauty is an expression of the divine image and must not be violated. Yeah. Wow. But That's not powerful. Even in your imagination. Right. But we don't feel that it's not enough to say that. Mm-hmm. Right. A 
person who who might and I imagine that there's a lot of young men or even older men that that are wrestling with pornography in in the audience. I would just say this that if you are it's not enough to say that you've got to be able to feel it. Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to feel in your bones that the other, any other, your wife, your girlfriend, people you don't even know or like very much, but any other is holy. Yeah. Is a holy manifestation of the image of God. And that, and don't forget this, the beauty of the porn star, I, I don't want to create problems here, but the beauty of the porn star is a modified and altered expression of the beauty of God. Yeah. And that's, it's not that, it's not that it's a different thing. Okay. The, the female body, the male body, they do manifest the glory of God. Yeah. And that's why it's attractive to you. Not because you're repulsive and it's repulsive, but because it's really beautiful. It's so beautiful that it shouldn't be responded to that way. Yeah. That it should be, it should be, you yourself are so noble that you should feel repulsed by the notion that you would think that way about another person. But don't, but I don't mean that in the sense of just feeling the shame, right? Right. No, no. Yeah. But the nobility, Mm -hmm. the nobility. Right, we 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 don't have norms because we don't have nobility. <laughs> I I love that, and and I, I feel like by saying this, I I'm I'm almost going to take away from from what you're just saying, but but I, I'm just reminded, as you said it, of Lewis's statement, you know, that you've never met just a mere mortal, right? right. You know, in right. terms of, and, and that's that's what we have to we have to Nor think ever about. Seen. Yeah. Nor ever seen. Yeah, ever seen a mere mortal in this con? Yeah, absolutely. If if to back to the point, if a person is struggling with that and and you're just capable of doing this at all, when you see an image that you, you know you shouldn't be looking at, not because it's bad, but because it's so beautiful, don't forget, that's an immortal soul. Yeah. Stop yourself and pray for her. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I almost feel like by bringing up this last statement, I <laughs> would detract from such a, you know, uh, uh, a wonderful uh, conclusion to this idea of nobility, especially where it just hits home in, in the real world with, with people thinking about sort of the sacramental nature of the, of our world by thinking about it that way. Um, you know, and, and maybe I'll just say this for another time, but, but I, I feel like your, your analogy versus analytics really raises some questions about grades as we think about, you know, education mm-hmm. um, and, and certainly, Maybe this even just plays right into it, you know, because a lot of times we're focused on grades in an analytical way, whereas really what you just described, you know, is the the goal of education. Maybe that's the maybe that's the perfect ending, you know, to to compare a grade based kind of education based in analytics with what you just described as the ennobled, you know, view and vision uh, of the other. Well, if I may, there's two quotations that I'll offer your 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 audience as a contrast that reflects that. Modern management theory mm-hmm. is based on a misquotation of Ed Deming, who is quoted as having said, what gets measured gets done. Mm-hmm. Or, or if you can't measure it, you can't, you won't, what gets measured gets done anyway. Right. He, he, he was saying it would be a great mistake to act on, <laughs> but that's what he's quoted for. It's kind of like the Bible says there is no God, right? Right. Like the fool has got in his heart. But anyway, 
modern management theory has been largely dominated and not, not it's, it's loosening up now, but largely dominated by the notion that if you can't measure it, you're not going to get it. If you can't, if it, what gets measured gets done. Okay. Plato has this wonderful response to that even before it was ever said mm-hmm. <laughs> in the Republic. He says, what is honored is cultivated and that which has no honor is neglected. Wow. You want to see virtue in your students? Honor it. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Well, I was going to ask you for a call to action, but I think that's it. <laughs> I, okay. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, yeah. but, but maybe have a final thought. I, I, that's just so wonderful. And, and, and I feel like this, in, this entire conversation for me has been so valuable and I hope our audience well, is, is, is enjoying as much, but I feel like I have been personally blessed. What would you say to parents and educators, you know, in light of everything we've talked about, do you have a final word or, or call to action? Yeah, I, I think let me let me come back to the to the statement by Augustine that music is the art of modulating well. Um, so is raising children. Yeah. So is teaching. And we need the stability. We need the fixed elements, and we need the the unfixed, the, the changing and the moving, and and we need the Trinitarian joining together that comes from wisdom. That that we have the wisdom of God. We have the law of God. We have the spirit of God. And we need, to, we need to see those three things woven together. But even that's a little too mechanical. Right? <laughs> um, where, you, where you can and should be stable. Where you need to be, be receptive to change. But always, always cry out to God to blow across your family with the, with the breath of the Holy Spirit. Call on the heavenly muse to, to guide your teaching. And always try to honor Christ because the thing about that is that our, our, the Father in heaven loves the Lord Jesus infinitely. And if we do the slightest step to bring honor to his name, the Father will call on the angels and they'll rush to our side. And, and he will give all the help that our pathetic selves need to, to, to bring honor because that's what he wants. He wants to see the name of our Lord Jesus honored. Amen. I don't know that. how he's going to do it, but he does it. Amen. Well, Andrew, thank you. I, I am um, again thrilled and I appreciate the time that you've taken uh, for our audience and, and to share these great thoughts. Uh, I do hope, folks, that you will uh, take some time to uh, to read these articles. They're well worth your time. The, of course, the links, again, are in the show notes. Uh, Andrew, thanks so much for your time. Scott, thank you. It's been a real honor.